This morning we are continuing our series in the book of Philippians, so I would encourage you to open up. We're going to be in chapter 3. This morning I want to start by making an announcement. It's a discovery that I've made that maybe some of you know about. I am not a physical therapist, but I think that this is true. Your eyes and your legs are connected. Your eyes and your legs are connected. The reason I know this, there are many reasons why I know this. One of the reasons is, have you ever tried to stretch your thigh muscles while standing, bending one leg behind you? I will not demonstrate, nor will I make you all stand up and demonstrate. Stretching your thigh muscles by putting your leg behind you, standing on one leg, and holding the leg that's up with your hand. And have you ever stumbled while doing so? My, I, I, I don't know who it was. I think it was my high school PE teacher taught me a little trick, though, that if you fix your gaze on a single point and you look at it in, intensely, um, while doing that, you, you won't fall. Phil reminded me that works almost every time. <laughs> it works almost every... The, 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 the point is, is that your eyes and your legs are connected, right? If your gaze is off, you will lose your stability. If, if you're not looking where you're walking, you'll veer off course. Those of you who have little kids know this, telling them, look where you're walking. Otherwise, they walk into things. Or we walk into things. The, the same is true metaphorically for our lives as Christians, uh, at least according to what the Apostle Paul is getting at in our text today. And, and you'll notice in our text, we're, we're just going to read chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 1. Um, he frames this text with two complementary ideas. So in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you the same things is no trouble for me and is safe for you. And then look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The fact that Paul begins this section of text and with, with a command to rejoice, and then he ends it with a therefore. Basically, he's summarizing everything that he's saying in our text before us today. And he, and, and he ends not just with a therefore, but then a command to stand firm in the Lord. It lets us know that everything that we're going to read about today is all about that. In other words, there is a way for... If you claim to be a Christian today, there's a way for you as a believer to sing a consistent song and hold a persistent stance throughout this life. There's a way for your joy and the steps of your journey to be stable. And Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians stand strong and that they make it to the end. And so the question that this asks of us this morning, if you are a Christ follower, if you claim to follow Jesus, the question that it asks us is, well, do you want to stand firm? 
Like, do you want to keep growing as a Christian? Do you want to remain faithful to Jesus until the end? Do you want to stay so firm in the faith that you don't forsake the truth? That's the question before us this morning. And the answer to this in our text is, Paul's basically going to say, well, then keep your eyes open. And that's, that's our big idea this morning. It's, it's, it's both of those things. Do you want to stand firm? And then keep your eyes open. And we're going to look at this in two parts. We're going to look at this in two parts. The first part is look out for those who reject Christ. And the second part is look at those who resemble Christ. So we're going to look at part one first. And again, this is all about stability. How do you stand firm as a Christian? So look out for those who reject Christ. I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 2 through 11. It says this. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Notice in in, in verse 2, Paul says something three times. He says, look out. Like, be alert. Be on the lookout. And he says, be on the lookout for, for a specific group of people, which he calls... Dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. And we'll unpack that in a second. But who are these people? Who are these dogs who mutilate the flesh? These evildoers? It becomes clear who they are uh, when we get to verse 3. And Paul starts to contrast himself and the Philippians with these evil mutilating dogs by saying that he and the Philippians, Paul says, we and the, my, I and the, we, me and the Philippians, he says, not those guys, but we. We are, and he says, we are the circumcision. The, these individuals that Paul is telling the Philippian believers to look out for are likely what many have called Judaizers. Who, th- these were individuals who stereotypically plagued Paul and his ministry. They, they held to a false belief that in order for one to be made right with God, in order to be saved, in order to get spiritual riches, non-Jews, Gentiles, had to adhere to the Mosaic law. They had to be circumcised and become Jews in order to attain this. And for the Judaizers, their, what Paul talks about, confidence in the flesh, their confidence in the flesh, their confidence before God, 
was found in their confidence in the flesh. Their confidence for God was found in the religious ritual of circumcision, in the religious adherence to the Mosaic law. And so basically, what Paul does here is he starts to engage in what I've called some sanctified, sarcastic smack talk. He calls them dogs, which does not have the same connotation it does in our culture. To call somebody a dog in a Jewish context, was this was the word that they used for non-Jews, those who couldn't enter the holy place of the temple, those who were outside, and dogs, the animals, were that way. And then Paul claims basically that these guys who engage in the ritual of circumcision, which I don't think I need to explain, He's basically like, yeah, they act like pagans who would mutilate and cut their bodies to worship demonic gods. This is smack talk. See, contrary to what these false teachers would claim, Paul says we, and this includes everybody here who claims to be a follower of Christ, we who worship by the Spirit, we who glory, who boast in Jesus, not our attainments, we who do not put our confidence in the flesh or in any religious ritual, We are the true circumcision, or we are the true Jews. We are the true people of God, not those guys. And Paul tells the Philippians, basically, look out for those who would impose on you and cause you to stray from the true gospel. And then he launches into a song, what I'm calling a song, about his own story in verses 4 through 6. And it basically goes like this. Many of you know this song. I can do anything better than you can. That's his song. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that's the law of Pharisee. And he just keeps going on. While these guys, the the Judaizers are saying, hey, you need to, in order to be good, in order to have a full belly, you got to go eat at this restaurant. Paul says, yeah, I own that restaurant. That's mine. Whatever reason these individuals who Paul is telling the Philippian believers to look out for, whatever reason that they had for confidence in the flesh, whatever reason they had for thinking that they're spiritually rich and connected with God, Paul says, well, guess what? I had even more. I had what those guys couldn't even have. Half of this stuff is stuff that Paul says is just, was just his as, from birth. And yet, we read in verses 7 and 8 that all that stuff, Paul says, I count all of that as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. In fact, in verse 8, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The word here for rubbish, not to be vulgar, but I'm just saying what Paul said, it is the word for excrement, for dung. He's being pretty blatant here. Paul's basically saying, listen, I've lost everything for Jesus. My attainments, I count all of that. 
all the stuff I could rely on before God to think I'm spiritually rich, he says, I've cast all that off. I've lost my attainments, my status, my position, my fame, my belongings. And he basically says, and you know what? I don't even care because I have Jesus. In comparison with him, in comparison with the gospel, all that stuff that I lost, it's as good as what I flushed down the toilet. Ladies and gentlemen, do you want to be spiritually rich? The way to do that is not the way of making much of yourself, proving your worth to God, performing all sorts of religious rituals and acts, making sure that you have a spiritual disposition and that you pray sometimes and that you have all the spiritual feel-goodies in your heart. What the Christian message of the gospel is, and what we see Paul exemplifying for us here, is that the way to get rich spiritually, the way to abound spiritually, is by recognizing that you're poor. It's not about presenting God with all of your attainments in exchange for heaven's riches, but it's all about coming to him empty-handed, recognizing that all that you could put your glory in, all that you could say, well, that's just, all this stuff is gold. It's recognizing all it is is fool's gold. It's worthless. And coming to God this way results in gaining Jesus. That's what Paul says in verse 8. He says he gains Jesus. Or, as Paul continues in verse 9, he talks about how gaining Jesus is also being found in Jesus. And he talks about having a righteousness which doesn't come from obeying the law, right, from his attainments or his religious rituals that he performs. But it's a righteousness which comes through faith and it's from God himself. Right? It's, It's only as we humbly recognize our spiritual insufficiency and trust in God's provision for us in Jesus who humbly came to die for the spiritually poor It's only as we do that that we gain rich spiritual life and right standing with God. That's the gospel. That is the Christian message. And as one author rightly points out, the reason that Paul now, so so remember, he said to look, look out for these guys, and then he kind of goes on this, he sings this song about his past and talks about the beauty and the richness of the gospel and everything that you gain through that that you can't gain by doing what these guys are telling you to do. The reason that he goes all th- through those things is to show the Philippians, as, as, as one author and theologian said, and I think he's right, it's, it's to show the Philippians how they are to reject the, these false teachers and their message. Right? In the same way that Paul rejected his former grounds of boasting, so they should reject this message. And, and, and I think for us, like, we don't have Judaizers walking around right, telling us the things that they were telling these guys. But the point is, is that we should be rejecting any notion or any message or any ideology that would claim that we need to be self-reliant as Christians. Or that we should rely on our own attainments in order to somehow gain God's blessing. That if you have a consistent devotional life, then that's when God will really bless you. 
Any notion that somehow through attending church you gain brownie points with God, or that through my right actions and thoughts that I could ever attain God's favor and the spiritual riches that he provides, all of that, Paul says, only comes as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But notice what Paul's doing here. He's not just saying that they need to reject the the false teachers and, and their message. He's also modeling for the Philippians what they sh- the, 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 the opposite of that. That they should cherish the right message. It's not just about rejecting the wrong message. It's about cherishing the right message. For us, you know, as, as we live in a world with all sorts of messages and ideologies that oppose the gospel, and even as we ward off such messages that live within our own hearts and minds, The solution to that, the solution to that fight is not being merely on the lookout for the wrong message and then rejecting it. That's not the solution. You don't fight that that fire with water. You fight that fire with fire. The way we fight that fight, the way we hold out, is not just by rejecting false messages, but it's also by holding on to a far greater, far richer, and far truer message. And it's that of the gospel. And when you read Paul's words here, I mean, I, can, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He just, he highlights for us the beauty of who Jesus is. Like, what else could we ever get that is worth more than Jesus? The whole world? Or as Paul would say, a a heap of rubbish? What could be better than him? What does a man do if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What does a man do if he gains the whole world and loses the gospel? What if you lose the pearl of great price? You don't lose that. The point is, when you find the pearl of great price, you hold onto it with all of your life. Brothers and sisters, the, the call to look out is also a call to stare at and glory in daily, weekly, in prayer and thankfulness to God. It, 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 is a, it is a call not just to look out at what is, and look out for what is wrong, but look at, stare at the glory of the gospel, constantly rehearsing its truths in your life, marveling at the amazing grace of God to us in Jesus. The question is, though, right, Paul's framed this whole passage in terms of rejoicing and standing firm. So what does their holding to the gospel and rejecting false messages have to do with standing firm? And, and, and we see in, in verse 11 of chapter 3, or sorry, verses 10 and 11, I'll read it again. It says, Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What does is, what, what is all of this holding to the right message have to do with standing firm? Notice here that in, in these verses Paul actually connects his belief in Jesus, his faith in Christ, with a Jesus-shaped way of living. 
This points back to chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. It's something that I think we've brought up every week throughout this sermon. When Paul rehearses the truths of the gospel and tells us about who Jesus is and what he did, it functions as the center of this book. And there, Paul lays out what Jesus did in the gospel as, as, the, as, the, most, as the ultimate expression of selfless service which the Philippians are to follow and which Paul also seeks here to emulate through his life. He wants to become like Jesus in his death. He couldn't get more explicit. And the point is, is that this, a Jesus-shaped lifestyle, a Jesus-shaped way of life, of humble service, of living sacrificially for the sake of others and for God's glory, that is the sort of lifestyle that belief in the gospel produces. For the Philippians to let go of the true gospel and to hold on to a false message means that they will not be leading lives that are Christ-like. In order to stand firm, in order to continue in faithfulness to God, in order to continue to press on, the Philippians and we, we, the point is that we have to hold to the gospel and hold out against lies. Because what we believe affects how we live. And so now, when we survey all of that, it starts to make sense why Paul would say three times in verse 2, look out. Look out. The he, he says the stability of your life as a Christian depends on it. Your legs and your eyes, they're connected. Keep them open. Look out. And in looking out, look at the gospel. Stare at the gospel. Hold on to it. And so Paul ends this, this section here with talking about this all about Jesus' life that he wants to live. Conformity into the image of Jesus. A life of sacrificial love and a life of consistently treasuring the gospel and being actively on the lookout for false teaching. And so as he does so, this whole concept might seem a little bit lofty, a little bit out of reach. Um, and so the question that we leave this section with is, so then how do we do this, Paul? Like, Can, can you show me how this is done? And that's when we get into, chap into chapter 3, verses 12 to 21. Paul says this, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
So how do we live this all about Jesus' life? How do we live a life that looks like Jesus is? Who can we look to as an example? And this gets us into our second point, which is look at those who resemble Christ. See, Paul's solution to those questions is found in the controlling command that he gives in the section of verse 17, where he says to the Philippians, imitate me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So Paul's not talking about just himself, but also the other mature Christians that are with him. And, and it's actually maturity that he's getting at, right? We see in verse 15 that basically Paul claims that he and others like him, who he's telling the Philippians to look at and to emulate, that they are, he uses the word mature in verse 15. So in short, Paul is calling the Philippians to live as mature Christians And the way that they are going to live as mature Christians, the secret to becoming a mature Christian is by learning from and following the example of other mature Christians who are like Jesus. We'll see in a second that Paul is not a prideful, egotistical person. It might sound prideful to say, just look at my life. Just do what I do. We'll see, we'll see that that's, he is a humble man in a second. But let me just say, what, like what this command reminds us of is that a massive part of the Christian life is that of emulation. It's that of mimicking, right? Learning from and looking like others. Which doesn't really jive with our desire to be special <laughs> and my own person. I think it also doesn't jive with something, you know, in in our Pacific Northwest culture, I I think something that we value, maybe a little too much, is this idea of privacy. It's, It's not that the Pacific Northwest is not friendly, but I think generally speaking, we're cautious about other people entering our lives. We're cautious about opening our homes, maybe letting other people into our struggles, letting them know our fears, letting them know our sins. But the reality is is that God has not called us as, as believers to follow in the footsteps of Jesus alone. Part of God's design is for us not only to learn about the principles of his word abstractly, but then also to learn how to apply them in our lives through the examples of more mature believers around us to learn from those who are more seasoned in the faith, who are further along in the journey of following Jesus than maybe we are. And we can't do that unless we let down our privacy walls. We can't do that unless we intentionally seek out mentoring, unless we intentionally seek out somebody who is more seasoned in the faith than us to say, can you invest in me? Like, can we... can we just like get coffee once a week? Can I just like talk to you about my struggles and my fears? We can't do that unless we surround ourselves with other believers who, are, who we are learning from. And the crazy thing is that once you start to open up your life to another believer that way, or to multiple believers that way, you, it, it, it shocks me every time. But you, you end up being surprised, which we shouldn't be surprised, that our struggles and our questions are not unique 
to us. That they're actually shared by more people than ourselves. And that there's actually a lot of people around us who are probably actually struggling with the same exact things. But if they're a mature believer who's further along, they've probably thought more than you or I have about how to deal with it, how to answer the questions. The saying is true, some things are better caught than taught, right? Some of the best ways to learn are by catching things from other people, observing. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. For the Philippians and for us, right, if we want to stand firm, we should keep our eyes on other people, on other mature believers who are following Jesus. We should seek to mimic and follow the example of other Christ-like believers. Something that Don Carson points out in his book on Philippians, I think, I think, it's, I think it's very helpful. So the question becomes, okay, so Paul says, imitate me. Like, follow my path. Keep your eyes on me and others like me We're, if you want to be mature. The question then becomes, so, so what does Christian maturity look like? Like what, what does Paul look like? And Paul gives us a few things in our text that that point to how he lives and how the Philippians should live and therefore how we should live. First, we see in verses 12 and 13 that mature believers are humble. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul recognizes that he is not perfect. He recognizes that he's not reached perfection. He recognizes that he's in process. Remember, Paul, like just before verse 12, got done listing these lofty goals of of an all-about-Jesus life. But then here in verse 12, he says, listen, just to clarify, I haven't, like, attained. Like, I'm, I'm not done my journey yet. These are my goals, but it doesn't mean that I've fulfilled all my goals perfectly. I think all of us can be thankful that the Apostle Paul says that when we, can, when we look at our own lives, right? Um, and, and even in verse 13, you, you'll notice that he talks about things that he needs to forget and leave behind. Whatever those things are, it likely includes mistakes that he's made along the way. Sins that he still commits as a believer. You know, one of the tensions that we live in as followers of Christ is the reality is, that, is, is this reality that, that we have this goal of, of wanting to be more like Christ. And then we see that we still live in a sinful body and we fall short of that in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts, in our attitudes. The, the interesting thing here, though, is that when Paul says that he's not already perfect in verse 12, he says, I'm not, I'm not already perfect. The word for perfect is the same word for mature in verse 15. It's, it's as if Paul is claiming for the Christian, maturity is not defined by perfection. Maturity for the Christian is defined by a humble recognition that we are not yet perfect, but that we are in process. See, the, the, the same recognition, the same humility that, that we need to have, the same poor state that we came in when we came to faith in Christ, right? our same reliance upon God's grace in the gospel, it doesn't somehow like change once we come to faith in Jesus. 
There is always, for us as believers, a humble recognition that throughout our lives we are wholly dependent upon God and his grace in our lives, that we have not arrived, that we are in process. But the other thing that we see here is that process also involves progress, right? Notice, even though Paul says he hasn't arrived, this doesn't function as some excuse for him to just, like, give up. It's not a cop-out. Rather, it's all the more reason to keep pressing on. So we see that he's in process. He needs to rely on God's grace. But with grace comes, the, the, the word I couldn't get out of my mind this week was, is grit. There's, there's a grit that comes to this, to make progress, to keep pressing forward. Notice in verse 12, Paul says, I press on. Verse 13, straining forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It, this, is, this is military language. This is, this is running language. This is athletic language. Christian maturity involves a process in grace, but it also involves a tenacious, gritty, lifelong investment of our time and energy into seeking to be more like Christ as we await the hope of our future and final salvation. And if you're anything like me, There's a lot going on in life. When I wake up in the morning, there's not only a lot I need to attend to, but there's also a lot of good things that I want to attend to. Our our lives are busy. But when we read these words from Paul, we're reminded that the call here is not, the call here is that as we go about our lives as Christians, busy as they may be, one of the things that we must be intentional about is how we live our lives. One of the things that we must be doing is exerting our energy and our time, our thoughts and our prayers into growth in Christ-likeness and faithfulness to him. This could be spending time getting counsel from a brother or sister on how you or I might grow in greater trust in God in the midst of our anxieties. Could be talking to parents that have kids out of the home, asking them, how, how did you do it? <laughs> it could be praying and searching through God's word for wisdom on how to faithfully represent Jesus in the gospel in your workplace. Part of standing firm in the Lord and rejoicing in him is actually trying to do that. That's the point. We need to try to do that. Trying, grit, it's, it's part of Christian maturity. So we see this process, we see progress, and then the final thing that defines this maturity, which Paul exemplifies and which the Philippians are to follow, is hope. It's hope and future glory when Jesus returns. Look at verses 17 through 21. Here Paul claims that what we've already noted. He, he starts off in 17 saying that the Philippians should imitate him and keep their eyes on him and others. But now, now in verse 18, we find out an additional reason why. He, he talks about these, these individuals who act as enemies of the cross, who live in an ungodly, earthly way. Basically, Paul says, imitate me because there's a bunch of bad examples. And they're path is going to end in destruction. Paul basically says, don't go down that path. 
But for the Christian in verses 20 through 21, Paul says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So in contrast to this earthly anti-God behavior of some, which the Philippians should not emulate, Paul says, just remember, our citizenship is in heaven. And, and the interesting thing here is, is that when, when, when he talks about Jesus coming back to transform our, he says, lowly body into a glorious body, right? It's, it's him transforming our humble body, our lowly body into this perfect, glorious body. And then he talks about Jesus' power to subject all things to himself. Again, Paul is making this link. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, we've talked a lot about this. This link back to chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Where Jesus was humbled unto death and then raised to glory. The point is, is that as the Philippians live this humble, lowly life, right? Recognizing that they're in process. And then as they do that, they, they seek to make progress in Christ-likeness. They, they, they try to live in such a way that just, you know, in, in emulating Jesus and others like Jesus, like Paul. So as they live this humble life, and as they follow that path of Jesus, just as Jesus' life ended in death and then also ended in glory, so theirs will when Jesus returns. The... the the point here is that their process and progress in the faith will then culminate in perfection. And this is the hope which Paul holds on to. And he's basically telling the Philippian believers, you need to hold on to this as well. If you want to be mature. If you want to stand firm, hold on to that. Right? That hope, what it does is it, it actually reorients our present struggles our present strivings to grow in Christ-likeness, but then it also serves as, as a motivator, right? That our goal and the prize, it's not unattainable. That which we are trying to reach, that's which, that which we are exerting our energy towards, is not unattainable. Jesus will come and we will, finish, we will finish the race. We'll cross the finish line and get the prize. I mean, this is what Paul talks about in verse 12. He says, I press on to, to, to make it my own. He's talking about the prize, final salvation, everything, the, the whole Christian hope. And why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. God has made us his own. And then the point is here at the end of this passage, and he's going to come get us. He will come get us. He will come to give us that prize. So Paul says, look out and look at in order to stand firm. I think I've, the past few weeks, mentioned Aaron Sherwood a few times. He, uh, he, he, he works in our church offices. He doesn't work for our church. He works for the, from, from the, the person that we rent from. And um, I was talking with Aaron this week about this passage, as I do most weeks. I, I verbally process. It's how I think. And... Um, he, as we were talking, he, 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 he mentioned the, the imagery of people climbing up a mountain, and I thought it was helpful. You know, as, as we step back from this passage, 
the, the big message is clear. Jesus has blazed the trail before us. He's gone up the mountain and reached the peak. And he calls us to follow in his footsteps. Paul was right behind him. And the Philippians were right behind Paul. And in some senses, we are also in that line. Trekking up the mountain. If the Philippians and we are to stand firm throughout this life as Christians, if we're to remain faithful to the end, then we have to look out. As we're climbing up that mountain, we have to look out for the pitfalls. We have to keep our eyes on those ahead of us and ultimately on Jesus. And this means, as we've seen in our text, treasuring Christ. It means remembering humbly that we are in process as we're going up the hill. It means as we're, as we're trekking up the mountain, it means that we're trying to trek up the mountain. We're making progress in Christ-like living and following in the footsteps of Jesus. But then it also means holding on to the hope of Jesus' return. Jesus made it to the top, and he'll make sure that we get to the peak as well in perfection. Do you want to stand firm is the question that this text, text asks us. And the answer is, well, then keep your eyes open. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. Would you make us as your people alert, with open eyes, to look away from what we should shun and to look to and hold on to that which we should treasure and cherish. Pray those things in your name. Amen.